Well, it's a spit-shiny new year, you gloriously miserable accursed. Hurley here, with the smartest, sweariest, turtle-neckiest political panel in the whole goddamn universe, although Corey's let us down today. Corey tonight, Jordan Leitnitz and Scott Reed. Good to see you, friends. Grapes, it's Hi. been three fucking weeks since we were last together. Happy New Year, everybody. Right? That's right. We did have a couple of we did have a couple of beverages in Saskatchewan. That was fun. It was fun. Yeah, folks. I've got a burning feeling that 2024 is going to be the gall darndest best year yet. Are you with me? No. No. Oh. No. I have an overarching uh, sense of uh, despair. Yeah. No. More Krypton. Yeah. yeah. All right. <clears throat> Today, courtesy of the fertile mind of Scott Reed, who suggested it. We're doing a holy fuck, it's 2024, what are our political predictions pod? What's going to be the sleeper issue of the year? What's the Who's the surprise politician to watch? And a few more categories. Plus, each of us is going to offer up a New Year's resolution for the political player of our choosing. Our cursed clipping is from David Baxter at Global News on Premier Canoe's comments setting the stage for a Manitoba carbon price carve-out. And then it's Gordon bringing in the first hey use of the new year. So... Guys, not much happened in politics while we were away. The usual, the usual Trudeau vacation kerfuffle, which I can't understand. I, honest to God, can't understand how he keeps taking these vacations and how they keep fucking up the comms about them. You know, I hear people tell me regularly, this guy's got the fire in his belly. This guy wants to beat Polyev. This guy's here. His mission is to beat Polyev. Well, that seems to me inconsistent with taking a $10,000 a night freebie vacation in this environment. Doesn't it, Jordan? Yeah, well, and I mean, I don't want to preview my hey you, but more concerning is I think the, the, the two stories on who's paying for it. It's just sloppy. This was an entirely predictable question that was going to come up from the media. Um, and I think that the other thing that it's a bit telltale of is what the conversations are like inside the prime minister's inner circle about these things. I think it's obvious he's not, he's surrounded by smart people. They know this is a problem. This is a known issue. This reinforces something that's already a perception problem. I am positive that multiple people gave him the advice that this was not the right choice to make. And he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And look, I don't get me wrong. Everyone's entitled to a vacation. I think, uh, you know, the prime minister just as much as everybody else, but it, but it matters how he does it. It matters where he goes. It matters, uh, you know, the amount of money that it costs and it matters who pays. And I think that the fact that he very clearly didn't heed that advice uh, is not a good sign. And it doesn't, to me, sound like somebody who is gearing up to address vulnerabilities ahead of another run. It sounds like somebody who's saying, fuck off, this is my personal time, I'm going to do what I want. And that's a, that's not a great attitude. Corey, what's your take? Well, I have very little to add or, or tack on to that answer. I, th I think Jordan kind of summed it up pretty well. But look, it, it's sort of amusing, as you pointed out as well, David, to see somebody make the same mistake over and over again. And, uh, like this has been going on since the first vacation he took when he came in as prime minister. And, and it's been just predictable versions of the same story. I think he's gotten away with a couple as well. Like, you know, in, he's been out, uh, uh, on Vancouver Island. He's been vacationing on, on expensive property, luxury properties of friends as well. 
It's, it's, um, Anyway, it's a, a political problem in saying that you're going to get a pass because of a technicality that it's, quote, a friend and therefore the rules don't apply. Uh, that's that's an anomaly that should be corrected in the Accountability Act, not uh, not embraced by the prime minister if he's hoping to uh, fare better than he is currently in his re-election efforts. Scott, matter, not matter? Uh, it probably doesn't matter in the big sense of things in terms of everything else that's going to, um, you know, get thrown into the Irish stew that will be 2024 that will determine how things play out in 2025. But it it is I, like I think. Jordan Wouldn't you really have physically thrown yourself in front of Paul Martin to prevent him from doing that? Uh yeah, but you know, I, I I think that Jordan really puts her finger on it. I think that. What this tells us and the consistency of this story coming up year after year, season after season, is that there is within their PMO and their circle, uh, there's a no-fly zone here um, in terms of willingness to heed advice, willingness to solicit advice. And so I just think that that's, that's a lump that they've decided they'll just take year after year. So, um, and, you know, we have to also put it in the context, and I we've sort of hinted at this before. I think a lot of these stories now are put into a revisionist context of, um, uh, you know, uh, a marriage that has been breaking up. And we've all avoided, and the media have avoided that topic, uh, you know, correctly so. But that, I think that's a big part of the explanation. I think that PMO get told, listen, I'm telling you right now, this is uh, this is something I'm doing. I'm doing for the family, and I'm not going to tolerate a lot of talk about it. And I think that that's probably what's going on. Now, how within even that context, the prime minister's office could say, well, this holiday has been paid for. Whoops. I mean, uh, this holiday is uh, not costing you. That's what we meant. It's not costing you taxpayers money. How you can get that glitch uh, is kind of a head sh shaking. Um and uh, and I agree strongly also with Corey that this uh, call a friend thing like this this makes no sense. And um, so like an MP cannot accept a ticket to a hockey game or a meal, but the prime minister can accept a hundred thousand dollars because it's from a friend. It doesn't make any sense. And they go, well, we ran it past Conrad von Finkenstein, who you know I loved in Salem's Lot, but I don't think. <laughs> Should necessarily like that. If that's the rule, then the rule is fucked. And uh, and I say this to somebody that you know hates these kind of like oh all politicians are corrupt and out to fuck us. Uh, I hate those kind of stories. I hate that kind of attitude. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true of Trudeau. But you know this is this is it's head shaking. All well, right. So the other thing I bizarre. noticed, the other thing I noticed over the holidays. Go ahead, Corey. Well, I was just going to say. I bet you. Uh, that uh, Prime Minister Mulroney is, is just banging his head against the wall, not claiming that Carl Heinz Schreiber was a good friend, because then it all would have been just fine. Like you can you, you can take this stuff to whatever level you want, right? But like the the whole the whole notion of, of friend not friend, it uh, it doesn't make things less icky; it makes them more icky. Yeah, the last thing I'll add is that I just I think it's baffling this whole notion. Like we're going to ask the ethics commissioner. We're going to get permission. And then that's trotted out as though it in any way negates the political problem that the stuff was known that it was going to cause. Like, this yeah. is weird to me. They know that's not effective. We know that's not effective. The media knows that's not effective. So, like, why, why engage in that bizarre charade? Yeah, I know. 
All right, Scott, I'm coming back to you, though, on my next one, because just when just when liberals, you know, just when it feels as a liberal, like there's no hope and there's no comeback path and you can't see how we can win the next election. Along comes Leslin Lewis. Along comes Leslin Lewis to say that Canada should leave the U.N. So uh, obviously she's not on the memo. And um, does this portend perhaps that the caucus is a little looser than we had confidently talked about at the end of the year about how impressive they were in managing people like her. I mean, because if there's a route back, it does involve those kinds of caucus members saying those kinds of things. Well, I mean, this kind of starts to fall into predictions for 2024, but I think 2024 is going to see a Leslie Lewis test applied. I think, I don't know if I can... I'd love to, as a partisan liberal, say that this is indicative of a broader caucus issue. I think that may not be true, but I think at minimum, it's a specific leadership test because Lewis is not going to sit idly. And she is going to, um, she's going to say something else like this. She's going to do other things like this over the course of the year. She'll do things that are more extraordinary and and more challenging, and they're going to have to come down on her. And I think it's going to be really interesting uh, how they handle her specifically and all that that entails. Um, I just think, um, I, I, I think there's a real maturity test for Polyev and his team as to whether she's going to be in caucus by the end of the year. Because I think she's going to throw three grenades, uh, or, or at least she won't throw them. That's the problem. She doesn't throw grenades. She just uncorks them, right? Yeah. And then just throws them into there. the caucus room. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I, by the way, I just want to underscore like this UN thing and lots of people have views about the UN and all that kind of stuff. And I'd like to see the UN reformed and, and, and more, but in a time when we're watching this war unfold in the Middle East and we're seeing the tensions here at home just skyrocket with protests in Toronto and roads blocked and overpasses plugged, um, you know, to sort of say, well, let's, Let's veer headlong into an argument about the globalist conspiracy, like this anti-Semitic garbage and how the conservatives also want to be as pro-Israel as anybody has ever been. I mean, there is a fundamental inconsistency and incoherence there, uh, all of which I think, again, they're going to have to deal with her because she does not give a fuck. And she's crazy as a box of matches. Yeah. Jordan? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I'm a little, I guess I'm a little, I have a different take on this one. So look, this is kookiness. I think it's, I think it's kookiness that reflects a Lesson Lewis problem rather than necessarily a caucus wide problem. She's a a frequent flyer on the crazy plane, if you will, on some of these things. And so I would, you know, like Scott, I expect to see maybe that come to a head this year because I actually think, and you know, there are a lot of MPs who endorse a lot of very crazy petitions. It happens pretty frequently. And so I'm maybe less incensed by her uh, involvement with this really off-the-wall petition. Although, you know, I, I agree with Scott for all the... This is not a helpful optic for the Conservatives for all of the reasons that he Wait a second, Jordan. She didn't, she didn't just sponsor to Parliament a petition that came to yeah. her from her writing. She's out there soliciting people to sign the fucking thing. I know, but this all, like, there's crazy stuff. Like, MPs do, like, that. that's, it's not unprecedented, right? Like, so, I, it's bad, don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not off the wall bad. But, like, 
where I would say like she has done worse stuff, like the meeting with yeah. Christine Anderson and the AFD, like that's worse stuff. So to me, the question is more like, what does the year hold for Leslie Lewis? What else is in that bag? And I think that there's actually, she's got a track record of things that have more intent and more damage behind them, even than this. Like, yeah, this is bad, but this is to me, not, not the worst of the offenses that she's committed. The thing that I'm really interested in is has anyone heard from Michael Chong? Is he okay? Does he need to blink twice if he needs a rescue? Like, there is a real problem going on in the Conservative Caucus right now around foreign affairs issues. You had the whole kerfuffle ahead of Christmas around whatever pretzel they're twisting themselves into on the carbon price in Ukraine. Now you have this happening, and nobody really seems to hear a word from Chong, somebody who has actually got some credibility uh, with, with the normies. Um, but you have Lesson Lewis uh, taking up all sorts of space on this issue. And so that I actually think is I think a, Michael Chong, problem. Michael Chong took himself out of cabinet once on a point of principle, and I suspect he doesn't intend to do that again. Well, <laughs> okay, maybe, but, he, you know, effectively is sitting on his hands while all this goes down. It's sort of the but same what thing, was, right? but, but what was the point of principle that he took himself out of cabinet on? The, 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 the Joe Clark... A uh, community of communities guy in the caucus who makes his way into cabinet is is offended by uh, recognizing uh, the distinct nature of Quebec within the federation. It's kind of fucking bizarre. Uh, I know, I know that uh, as as you said, Jordan, all the normies like uh, Michael Chong a lot, but I think there's still some explanations owed as to 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 what exactly the point of principle was that he took himself out the first time around. It was, but, sure, but anyway. Paulie, should let Corey, they the can't, they can't right fire now. Leslie Lewis. Scott's wrong. They can't fire Leslie Lewis because part of their strategy is to suppress the PPC vote as well, much as possible. Sure they can. The day after uh, Polyev becomes prime minister. Like, I, what I view this as is people doing their best to audition for cabinet right now. And some people are, are the audition is going, uh, audition is going better than others. But uh, the... <laughs> Uh, but there's, uh, you know, w once you actually are in, in government, uh, you know, provided Polyev you know, continues to, to hold it together the way he has been, which is quite capably, uh, until after the election and you get to pick a cabinet, you go from having, you know, three carrots and, and, uh, you know, only one stick, uh, to having a thousand carrots and about 500 sticks and your ability to manage caucus, whether it's, you know, through the naked exertion of power, whether it's through buying them off one carrot at a time, like it, it goes up in infinitely. And, uh, you know, the, the people who want to have a big role in cabinet will behave well between now and the next election campaign. And if there's somebody who costs the party, you know, some seats or God forbid, uh, government or a majority government, uh, well, you know, the, 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 the fields will be sown with their bones because it, it's not going to be tolerated after, uh, after an election campaign. But that's when the leverage really comes into play and, uh, and where people's, uh, contribution or lack thereof will be recognized. Do you think he's just going to let her do her thing until then? Well, I think he'll try to police as, as best you can. And I think they've been doing a very good job of that overall. But like even the best goalie in the NHL, uh, still gets some, uh, some pucks to make it past them into the net. So like, you know, you're never going to have a hundred percent on this stuff. And some people are going to be more problematic than others. Leslie Lewis is obviously one of those. Uh, but let's, let's, you know, keep it real around this. 
I don't think it's a real proposal. It is a internet uh, survey that's designed to capture people's data and information so they can market other things to them in the future. It is a tried and true campaign technique that every party uses. It always gets used on issues that are a little closer to uh, to the sun than than uh, what you market in a general election campaign. But it's done to to capture voter information and use it for future campaigns. So, you know, I, I think we should all let go of our, our pearls that we're clutching around this shit because every party does it, and I don't think it's that big a deal. That's exactly what I would expect. A Soros-sucking, <laughs> establishment-invested turncoat like you to say. And when the revolution comes, Corey, it's your head that's going on the first yeah, part. Right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, there'll always be Robespierre's out there, but uh, well, you know, I, how that ended up. I have very fond memories of uh, the 2004 federal election and of fond memories of observing the wild rose defeat in the Alberta election. Now, I know that these caucus uh, people can... Reframe the party. They can hurt you uh, yep. when they... Uh, well, ask, ask Randy White in 2004. Like, you uh, you have an idea of how much that hurt us. And, and well, he, wasn't like, a, he wasn't a new newcomer. Yeah, like, but yeah, that's, I think, you know, like, I don't know. Does that change anything that I said? It's like, if this is an addition, and if you end up costing the party something, like, it ended Randy White's career. Like, right. he is still a, a curse word in the conservative party. Uh, 20 years later, people still fucking hate the guy. Because uh, he he cost Stephen Harper uh, government in in the view of conservatives now whether everyone else agrees that 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 was what it hinged on or not but that's what the internal narrative coming out of the campaign was. Yeah, I think it she's helped. driving news way too often, way more often than I would be comfortable with in the conservative yeah, well, leader's well, office. Look, uh, I, you know, I I hear mixed reviews uh, from from people, but like all, all reviews become one <laughs> review reviews. if you end up if, um, if you. Well, like, there are people who 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 Batman like Batman villains seem to like her. Just a light um, flirtation with fascism, guys. Don't worry about it. Just a light, uh, just yeah, a little, well, you know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be calling the black woman in caucus a Nazi, uh, which is kind of the the road that we've gone down on this in the past, which I think is kind of silly. So, like, look, she is a social conservative, and not not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and you know, if you want to actually get into the substance of the beefs with the UN, like there's a there there, you know, uh, what legitimate organization, uh, has the human rights committee dominated by countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, like how many concentration camps do you have to be operating in your jurisdiction? How many gays do you have to throw off the roofs of buildings? How many, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. What does the polling say about pulling out of the UN? Either yeah. how important a priority well, is for people or whether it's a good idea. If it's you're going to have a conversation about the UN on that basis, there is some utility in it. Uh, but like to, to just take take things that are typical campaign tactics used by every party and on issues where there actually is a bit of a there there and then spin them into this is going to cost you the election. That is, I think, a stretch. What was harmful about Randy White? 
was it was uh, a direct violation of, of the, the framing around abortion that the, the prime minister or, or the want to be prime minister, later to be prime minister, Stephen Harper, had spent a lot of time and effort marketing and saying what he was not going to allow it happen. And it was a direct violation of that on an issue that affects, you know, potentially 50 percent of the well, it was population. Same sex, wasn't it? So, he wanted he wanted yeah. all gay couples to move to a country that he said would be called humunculi. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> That's, I'm not kidding. That's what the fucking tape was. And I remember it well. It was the best moment in my adult yeah. life to that point. Happy New Year, you glorious hurly-burlyites and accursed. I'm sure a bunch of our listeners have made resolutions for 2024. It's what people do as the calendar turns, eh? They make a few changes. Or try to. But maybe not shockingly, I'm going against the grain. Taking my inspiration from Stuart Smalley on SNL in the mid-80s. Google it if you don't know. I like me, you like me, so doggone it, I'm going to keep doing me. You all know TELUS, our presenting sponsor, has a similar belief in consistency in how they live their values and social purpose, the core of which has a lot to do with this little maxim. They give where they live. So I want to throw a little light on how TELUS struck up a partnership with a local startup back in 2017 to help them do just that. Benevity is a Calgary-based outfit that creates software to help companies implement their corporate social giving programs with maximum efficiency. Basically, it helps TELUS team members, current and retired, easily track their volunteer hours, create and sign up for volunteer activities, and make donations. On a corporate level, Benevity also enables TELUS's community board grants to charities all over Canada. You know what happens when you have an idea that makes doing good even more powerful? That idea grows. Benevity has exploded to become one of Western Canada's largest startups. From a small room above a local shawarma shop to offices in Calgary, Victoria, Toronto, California, Geneva, and Barcelona. Some of their other customers? Nike, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and over 900 leading brands around the world. Not too shabby a client list. That's what happens when companies like TELUS and Benevity bring common goals to the table. Good business meeting good purpose to make deeper connections and greater impact around the world. All right, let's move on to the fun part of this show. This is Scott's predictions. Yeah. Right. And we're going to make him go first on the first one, and we can all pound on him. All right. You ready, everybody? So, sleeper issue of 2014. Scott. What is the sleeper issue of 2014? It's 2024, you goddamn dinosaur. 2024. Fuck, I'm old. All right, let's cancel the show. I'm so inspired by Kathleen Wynn's op-ed that I am revealing my fucking uh, age here. 2024. Yes. 2014. I love it. Okay. It was a better year for me. Yes. (laughs) Trying to remember. Um, My sleeper issue for 2024 is healthcare. Uh, I mean, I think that people at the federal level like to like, you know, roll their eyes and go, oh, not that old chestnut. The federal liberals are going to try to trot it out. Or they say, if you're the liberals, inexplicably, they say to me, well, you know, that issue's been dispelled. We had a large increase two years ago. And so that issue's done. I mean, we know that at the local and certainly at the provincial level, this issue is driving dissatisfaction and anxiety. We've seen its ability to turn provincial elections, not predicting that it will turn the next federal election. I'm not predicting the next election will be about health care. 
but it remains a gigantic anxiety on the part of most Canadians. I think that the Conservatives can be tempted into an adult discussion about health care and its delivery, and I think that our friend in Alberta is going to absolutely catalyze this discussion. I think she's being reckless. I think she's exposing herself to political harm, and I think she's exposing the federal Conservatives to political harm. I think this issue is going to um, bubble along loudly uh, at uh, in a whole pile of provincial capitals over the course of the year, and I think that it has an ability to migrate. Into How do the, the Libs associate Polyev with provincial conservative administration of healthcare? Well, if he's wise, he'll distance himself from those things, which I think he will, and he's been really reasonably successful at that. But I think that you go hard uh, by taking a. I, I mean, I, I I think one of the failings of the Trudeau Liberals is to see the opportunity of provincial conflict, not not just provincial cooperation. They seem to try to duck these fights, and I would go um, at one of these fights in particular. I think with Danielle Smith. And uh, and I don't know that I need to actually make the conservatives the villains on it. Uh, <laughs> I want to make myself a champion on it. I actually think it's a good values proposition for them. So I just I think that healthcare is going to be a more consequential um, issue than people think. And when people shake their heads and say, oh, that's such an immature knee jerk political thing and or that issue really isn't a federal issue. I think they're dead wrong, and I think that this thing has the ability to um, uh, to affect people's thinking. Corey, what's yours? What's your sleeper issue of 2024? Well, I think it's going to be these. Uh, I think there's some big Supreme Court of Canada rulings, but uh, like one of the ones that I think will be most impactful to people who listen to our, our podcast is going to be the Supreme Court decision around uh, blackout periods for third-party uh, campaigning, et cetera, et cetera. This is a campaign. Uh, uh, this is a rather a, a, a reference going back to to your time provincially uh, in the Wynn government, uh, David. This is the working family's challenge to the limitations on third party advertising, out, out, you know, both within and outside of uh, campaign writ periods. But if if the Supreme Court upholds uh, what the lower court has said on this, basically all the rules are out the window and we're going to have uh, a system that I think is very similar to what you see in the U.S. where there's going to be super PACs, there's going to be huge amounts of money flowing into... Citizens uh, United. Yeah, it, it's going to be something akin to that and I, I think the response is going to touch every province and every political jurisdiction across the country and they're going to have a choice between getting rid of the sorts of rules that we've been seeing slowly coming in over the last three decades, four decades, uh, around more transparency, about more restrictions and accountability around how money is raised and spent in politics. And it's going to go exactly the other direction to either totally dark or totally unrestricted or some combination of the two. So I, I think that's going to be a very consequential thing that people, people don't see coming. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it'll be less consequential, I think, if if uh, if uh, the Ontario law is upheld. Although that'll have ramifications too, because Ontario law is much more restrictive than elsewhere in the country. Um, but either way, it's gonna, it's going to have a big impact on campaigns and people who run them, which is who yeah. a lot of our audience are. Yeah, fundraising was certainly a lot easier when you could start off by going to the banks for half a million each. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, Jordan, what's your sleeper issue of, the, <laughs> well, of this upcoming year, whatever fucking year it is? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, imagine you could just redo the decade. You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I was with I'd Scott. Some, I, I would do some things differently. Would you? Yeah, I was going to say. Mm. <laughs> that would be a good show. Everyone had a redo. I'd comport myself differently on a personal basis. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. So I was with Scott. I had health care. Health care is my, my sleeper issue. I think this is something that even though the headlines have been taken and, and you know, obviously affordability and interest rates have really eaten and um, are really pressing people to the very top. This continues to bubble very strongly under the surface. People are experiencing, a, a, frankly, a collapsing healthcare system in different ways across the country. You know, like eight-hour ER wait times have become the norm. ER closures are becoming more and more common. <clears throat> Lack of access to family doctors, really, at, at, at all points, surgical wait times, everything is getting worse. And, and the system, having been on the brink, and COVID having pushed it beyond the brink, and now that we're out of that COVID period, the fact that people aren't really seeing material improvements uh, in the healthcare system is really punishing provincial governments. Like you can see this, like, like Go is living this right now in full painful color. Uh, as you mentioned, this can turn elections. You know, I love I, the people involved. we know who think that Lego is in trouble because of things like McGill. No, no, yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> He's in trouble because Quebec no one ever got elected beating up on the English. Inarguably <laughs> the worst healthcare system in Canada right now. Right. And people are uh, tired of it, you know. Uh, we saw Wab Canoe win on, on the issue, really, largely of, of ER access, of getting people uh, better access to healthcare. I think it's interesting, you know, what you're seeing in BC, where EB, I think, like pretty smartly, they made some big investments in the human resources side, which is where a lot of the pressure points are now. So you've got the, the question of federal funding, which is always going to be there, but now it's also flowing down to the provinces and how do you deal with this, H this human resources and the staffing crisis? And so you're seeing different provinces take different approaches. Ford obviously has chosen chosen to, to go, uh, go in and bolster some of the private delivery. So we're going to see what happens there, but uh, there remain big issues, right? And I think that what the, the special sauce will be for the federal folks in the coming year is cornering Polyev on his views on the delivery of healthcare. And what are the strings that he would tie to any federal funding that's going to the provinces to alleviate some of these problems? And I think that that could be a really, really interesting conversation because the other thing that's going to happen in the coming year, we're already seeing hints of it, is there's always going to be these expanded attempts at actual two-track healthcare, like you know, private clinics opening up, Things like that. When you re when you see these wait time pressures in the public system, you you get these these attempts. And so, what's going to happen? Is the federal government going to take on provinces where that's being allowed to happen? And what's Polyev going to say about all that? So that's something that I'll be watching to see um, how it plays out in the coming year. I think this is all wishful thinking on both your parts on this. This is not. This is not animating the electorate, and it's uh, and there is a huge credibility gap for every party around this. Like healthcare scores high as an issue always, and credibility for politicians talking about their magic solution uh, that they're going to bring in on this stuff is is low. And you know, Bob Canoe is going to face this himself. Like you know, he's promised to to, to pull rabbits out of hats. Uh, around uh, healthcare delivery, which he are going to find, he will find are very hard to pull out. Uh, everyone's dealing with versions of the same thing. It's there's a lack of people working in healthcare. Uh, there's a lack of funding, largely driven at the at the federal level. The NDP are trying to make it worse by spending money on new entitlement programs like uh, uh, like uh, 
uh, universal pharmacare. But like at, at the end of the day, this is this is not uh, this is a fever dream you guys are having around what you're going to be able to fight a federal election campaign on. Like it's not it's not this. Uh, yeah, who, we'll see. Is, but who, I refuse like, to. I refuse you, you, you to accept some, the premise you need a that it's worse to, to go into a campaign with more health care offer for voters than less. And so I well, I remain interested in what Polyev's offer will be on this. Well, you know, it's been weaponized in the past, Corey. Um, well, I mean, it's you're right. It's an important. You need, you need people. Though, you need people willing to play along. But if you're saying is we've dug a giant pit the size of an elephant and we put pokey, pokey sticks at the bottom of it, and now we're going to put a little carpet over this, and we're going to hope that Polyev walks up and falls into said pit and impales himself on the spikes. Like, it's, come on, guys. Like, it, this is this is a cartoonish. Uh, view of what's going to happen. In the although, next although, we Corey, the carpet although Corey, leaves, Corey, yes. Corey, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't only Randy White who fucked Stephen Harper in 2004. Ralph Klein, in my That's view, quite strange. deliberately fucked Stephen Harper by taking our bait on private delivery and having a fight with us. Right? Yeah. Like, so who's going to do that? Like, who's going to do Smith? that? Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, Daniel Smith uh, is doing it. Hey, well, this is great, I, I, Corey. Like, right like, don't, now. Don't, You're don't, literally don't, wandering up to the trap and licking the cheese. I can't wait. I hope think. every conservative adopts the same perspective. Uh, well, I think there's actually there's there's points for Polyev and and sparring with her if need be. Like it's an area of the country where it's it, there is there are no seats at stake for Polyev if he gets in a fight with Smith. He's going to win all those seats anyway, so why not? And uh, there are votes, I think, in the rest of the country. And fighting with Smith, if you're Polyev, so like, he's going to have to. He's That's going to have to very decidedly break from her on the CPP. So it'd be interesting to see if he well, would break he already from has, her. But too. Like, I, yeah, but I, more. You know, do you know what I haven't seen happen in quite some time? Is Daniel Smith out talking about CPP? Like, I, I think that's basically faded into the background. Well, that would be good for Polyev if we'll true. See, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, by the way, just. Uh, to wrap it up, I think uh, I don't see it as a major election issue, but I do see it as emerging as part of the discussion, which is poverty in the country. Um, I think that a combination of rapidly expanding homelessness, which is rendering cities much more uncomfortable for people, not just the homeless, but the non-homeless as well. I think the lineup, lineups at food banks, the level of food insecurity that's happening in the country. There's an underclass developing in Canada that... People are, uh, I think, uh, A, not going to be comfortable with and are not comfortable living among. And so I think that that's going to be, especially in the cities of the country, an increasingly important part of the discourse as time goes on. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, but I think it's going to manifest itself a, a lot around the issue of crime. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk for a minute about an unsexy, plain brown, unprepossessing thing that has nonetheless managed to acquire iconic status in the Canadian institutional memory. The railroad boxcar. We've all seen them at some point, usually so many bolted together behind a locomotive that you can't see the end of the train. Every kid on the prairies, and quite a few elsewhere in Canada, has squirmed in the back seat of the family sedan at a rail crossing watching a solid wall of those rectangular brown cuboids, yes, that's the geometric term, clicking by for what seemed like forever. 
Boxcars have looked basically the same for nearly 200 years. That timelessness has made them famous. Bandits chased them in westerns. Hobos jumped onto them in the 30s. Stuntmen leaped out of their sliding doors in movies. And over the decades, they transported just about everything everywhere. Our sponsor, CN, operated wooden boxcars during the company's early years, 30,000 of them at one point. They were eventually ruled fire hazards and phased out. In the 50s, the railway began using steel boxcars. One particular fleet was nicknamed Buffalo Cars because of the Manitoba Buffalo image each one displayed. They were originally used to move newsprint, then modified to haul grain to Churchill and Thunder Bay. The arrival of specialized hopper cars in the second half of the last century removed the grain mission from boxcars, but they remain in use for just about everything else. Modern boxcars are bigger and more sophisticated, often refrigerated or cushioned. A few years ago, CN ordered 800 new ones, 60 feet long, high capacity, and yes, still brown. It might seem a little counterintuitive to be spending millions expanding capacity like that in a period of economic uncertainty. But CN believes that constant reinvestment in the railroad, regardless of the economic cycle, is wise. Massive disruptions to supply chains in Europe and Asia have put pressure on Canadian producers. And governments in North America are talking a lot about nearshoring. And there's a shortage of truckers. So CN needed more boxcars for forest products, or metals, or minerals, or auto parts, or bagged agricultural products, or whatever. Because, as I've said here a few times, Cargo has to move, and boxcars just keep rolling. All right, surprise politician to watch in 2024. Uh, Jordan. Okay, so my pick for this one is Mark Miller. So I think that Mark uh, has, he's got a couple things that, that's going to make him an interesting person to watch in the coming year. So he's, Look, he's a smart guy. I think he's a pretty authentic communicator. He's shown his ability to negotiate in tough files when he was in Indigenous Affairs. And the file that he has, uh, that, he, that he won in the great shuffle, kerfuffle, if you will, of 2023, uh, is about to get red hot. So immigration is going to be a really, really challenging file in the coming he's year. He's a superb deputy too, by the way, Christian Fox. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's uh, it's going to all be needed because he's got uh, he's got a tough needle to thread. And I think that the early signs, what he's putting out this year are really interesting. So he is going head on at the issue of whether the the immigration targets are worsening housing affordability pressures in Canada. He is squaring his sights on the absolutely astronomical number of temporary residents that Canada has been letting in. What I'm going to be really interested to see if is if he goes all the way on that into the real nut of the issue, which is not foreign students. It is the temporary foreign worker program, which for too long has been uh, allowed to to grow um, and allowing people to to bring it's a in business temporary subsidy, workers. Isn't it? It's totally a business subsidy that is allowing businesses to not pay the wages that Canadian workers are demanding, and so. Uh, we're going to see if he's going to go at that. He's going to go at the the uh, the generously given labor market opinions that uh, have undergirded all of this. So we'll see what happens there. But, you know, he is also out there talking about things like a path to citizenship for undocumented people. This is really important stuff that the government has left undone for many years. 
Uh, and I and so I commend him for taking that stuff on. I am watching uh, with great interest to see how he's going to navigate all this. I hope he's successful. These are really important issues. It's really important that the immigration file not dissolve into a xenophobic shit show. So I hope he uh, I hope he does it right. I hope he does it well. Uh, and I think he's a really interesting person to watch this year. Interesting, Corey. Who's your pick? Uh, John Rustad, the BC Conservative leader. Like somebody that not a lot of folks know with a party that has, you know, we've seen iterations of, but, uh, um, I encourage everyone to listen to Hotel Pacifico, uh, the sister podcast on BC politics. Uh, it's a part of the air quotes media network, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in BC and, uh, I think he's driving it. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more about the guy. Uh, over the coming year, because I, I think uh, he's got momentum, and uh, that's interesting to watch. He's leading a realignment, you think? Yeah, I, well, I, I think so. But like, there's been a bit of a vacuum. Uh, you know, the rebranding of of the BC Liberals is is maybe not gone as perfectly as as people would have liked. Uh, but you know, I think there's probably some leadership issues there too. Like you, you know, it, it, it's it's maybe less the party label and more about. Why is it that you're running? What is it that you're offering is? What is it that the, is the problem with the existing government? What is it that is your solution? The kind of framing that, that, you know, you're seeing Polyev do effectively and that any opposition party that wants to become, uh, you know, the government has to go through. You're just not seeing happening within the BC Liberals right now. So I, I kind of feel interested to see whether Falcone gets his mojo back or, or finds it in the first place. And whether whether or not uh, Rustad and the and the BC Conservatives are actually able to put something together here, and it's dubious whether he has mojo. I think Corey. Yeah, well, mm. we're, we're going to find out. Mm. That's why when to watch Scott. <laughs> um, Francois Legault. I think I think there's a I think there's a really strong possibility that he's going to quit this year. I don't think we joked about this on the pod before. I don't think this guy is built to be behind in the polls. I don't think he likes it. I think he wants to be. Uh, King shit of Turd Island, and he doesn't like it when he's being contested or confronted with uh, disagreement and uh, challenge. And so I think that he's going to. Uh, I think this this is uh, admittedly going to uh, be a longer term play in 2024. But I think like he's going to bail in like November, December of 2024, and just say, "All right, fuck this noise. My poll numbers haven't improved, and I don't want to be sitting around for this. I don't want to compete in an election where I might lose. That's not what I'm all for." And as I, you know, cruise towards 70 years old. So I think he's going to leave and I think it's going to cause turmoil in Quebec politics. And I think what causes turmoil in Quebec politics causes turmoil at the federal level. And uh, and by the way, I'll put a little asterisk in for Susan Holt, who I think is going to beat Blaine Higgs like a drum at some point this year. And that also is going to be in defiance of kind of like, oh, well, you know, we got an in and out. I want that to From your lips to God's ears, Scott. I want that to happen, Scott. I even want that to happen. a lot. But I think it's really hard to see liberals picking up provincial governments in this environment in the next year or two. I just don't see that happening. And, and I just think that Higgs is going to make the, Higgs eclipses that. And so it's, uh, well, if he was I think running be the in issue. Toronto, if he was running in Toronto, but he's running well, in. Look at his poll numbers in New Brunswick. Yeah, but I, I also well think behind. it's about his own management of his caucus. It's about the priorities he's putting forward it's about how he's dealing with like people in atlantic canada are not living a great life right now there's a lot of pessimism and i think that there is an opportunity for his opponents to capitalize on that we'll see well, 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 I know, by the way when you're looking at polls in new brunswick 
You need to bear in mind that Brian Gallant, in the election he lost, beat Brian Higgs by seven points in yeah. the popular vote and lost the seat It is such a count. strange province, the way yeah. it breaks out rural and French and English. North and um, south, and yeah. But I'll go yeah, back all, to, I'll just go back that. to Legault. I, 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 I'll be very surprised if Legault competes the next election. And I, I think that 2024 is the year he'll bail. Right. Well, given the underlying tectonic plates of Quebec politics, that likely means something that we like less, not something we like more. But Quite possibly. Right. Well, I think the surprise politician of the year is going to be Peter McKay, because I think he's going to announce that he's running in Central Nova uh, for well, Polyev. What's surprising about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, and I think that the Polyev well, people the really, really mm-hmm. want him, because I think the Polyev people really, really want to beat Sean Fraser. Uh, I think that they have identified Sean Fraser as somebody that could someday beat them. And so they're going to eliminate him uh, as quickly as they can in a bad election in Atlanta, Canada for the Liberals with a great candidate against them. Um, so if you're thinking about the Liberal Party in the year 2030, you might want to contribute to Sean Fraser in uh, uh, Central Nova. Uh, next category, conventional wisdom about 2024 is correct about... What, Scott? That Trump will win. And I know that that is, I know that's terrifying and I know it's going to break the world and I know it's going to reshape politics everywhere. But um, I have held out this long hope that Biden would actually say, I was just head faking. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not running. But we've got Iowa and New Hampshire staring us down. I don't think Biden's leaving. I think he's going to run. And between the economy and the fact that he, uh, you know, he 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 looks like uh, he's an extra from Driving Miss Daisy. I just think it's uh, I, 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 the underliers I are so bad for him, Scott. It is frankly only Trump's candidacy that makes this thing even remotely close. Like, given the underliers, Corey Biden should be getting smoked. Yeah, and and I, I think you. You know, I, I tend to agree. That was going to be my pick as well. I'll make a different pick now <laughs> for the sake of <laughs> diversity. But I, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's the economy. And if it wasn't for for all of the other parts of of Trump that are unpleasant, um, then it, it, you know, it wouldn't be close. But yeah, and and it, it, you could say it another way too. If Trump wasn't the candidate, it wouldn't be close. Like and and mm-hmm. it, it's it, Biden is in in very difficult position and uh, you know as I've said before he looks like a somebody in a senior's home in Fort Lauderdale shuffling quickly to get an elevator like he looks frail and old and weak and at a time when uh, the world is entering uh, you know deeper and deeper conflict and how important are, do you think the age thing is Corey like let me ask I you think this. I think it's over overwhelmingly the driver. Let me ask you this question. So, for instance, people are super negative on Biden's handling of the economy and people puzzle about this because actually, you know, you can make an argument that soft landing and all that kind of stuff, they've actually managed it reasonably well, but his numbers are terrible. And I look at that and I wonder how much of it's because people can't believe he would be good at it anymore. Yeah, he projects weakness. He does not project strength. And and that's, he projects frailty. The visual is... But what campaign Just have we ever been of everything? Like, like name name a campaign where the the candidate that's perceived as as strong and demonstrating strong leadership loses to the one that looks weak and is is demonstrating you know weak leadership traits. 
Like it, this is really down to dogs in the dog kennel a little bit around this stuff where, where, you know, you, you've got, if you want to be top dog, you've got to be dominant and you've got to appear to be dominant compared to the other alternatives. And, you know, like, I, I don't know, Kathleen Wynn, for example, always looked like she was the alpha in the races that she won, right? Like if, if you're, you want to use examples like that, the stronger candidate tends, tends to do better. Uh, in, in maybe not in every case, but in almost every case. But I think that's overwhelmingly the driver here. Look at the amount of conflict and war going on in the world this year. And, you know, if I were to, to say, you know, what, what do I think conventional wisdom's right around this, this year? We're going to see even more of it. I think we're going to see a, an expansion of the conflict that's going on right now in the Middle East. All, all arrows are pointing in that direction. And, and sadly and unfortunately, uh, I think that's, that's where it's going to go. But in that in that environment, does a a Trump presidency uh, resonate better than a Biden presidency? I think so because he looks like an alpha, and uh, and it's a weird confluence of two things. He's he is a a uh, isolationist alpha, somebody who looks like you know they can make threats from across the ocean and keep people in line without actually having to go and engage in in conflict and deploy troops and you know in yet another Middle Eastern war. So uh, I, I think that's all trending in his direction. And, and on the economy, hey, look, on macro numbers, the economy looks like it's doing well in the United States. The problem is that, you know, two thirds of the population in the United States is not exp experiencing that upside. They're experiencing, you know, prices for food and things that are aggregate 20% higher than they were before and they haven't gotten a raise. And so the fact that some asshole in the stock market made, you know, another billion dollars is not really helping them in their day to day life, which is why I think you see so much unhappiness, despite what are, you know, GDP numbers that are uh, on the growth side that are pretty impressive, especially compared yeah. to Canada. And when young people are just bailing on Biden, right, they don't feel as though they are getting benefits from the economy in the U.S. They feel as though there are big commitments that Biden made that went unfulfilled. And some of that stuff was out of his control, right, with the Supreme Court overturning the student debt plan and things like that. And he's also losing support because of his support for Israel in the conflict like that. That's also demotivating big segments of Democratic voters. So he's got a real problem. But I'm going to be counter. Um, I'm going to be counter to the group and I'm going to bring a new conventional wisdom right issue that's domestic. Um, so I think it's going to be the continued focus on affordability and cost of living pain for voters here in Canada. So even though interest rates uh, have obviously slowed and we're going to maybe start to see cuts soon and inflation is slowing, I think there's two things that are going to stick around this year that are really going to drive the conversation here in Canada. And the first one is the massive number of mortgages up for renewal this year. So that's that's half of Canadian mortgage holders are up for renewal in the next two years. And this is and these are people who got their mortgages at a time when interest rates were rock bottom. So there is a lot of anxiety around that. And I think that that's really that's going to uh, that feeling is going to move a lot of stuff for voters this year in Canada. And the other thing is prices. So even though inflation has slowed, prices are still stuck pretty high. Like food prices are still higher than they were and higher than they should be. And so that issue of just day-to-day -day cost of living pressure is going to stay with us. And I think that that's something that is going to continue to really shape the, the politics here in Canada over the next year and one that uh, politicians would be wise to hew close to.
Think how much higher they're going to be after uh, you throw all the foreign workers out who are, are picking uh, food <laughs> in, the, in, in the greenhouses in Essex and places like that. Man, oh man, you got to pick which narrative you want to be on on that one. <laughs> we, we can't believe inconsistent things, Corey. No, no, Corey. We can, we can all the time. It's 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 actually something we celebrate every every week on this podcast. I just I'm, believe that if people I, I, are good I'm, enough I'm, to come I'm, and I'm work the, here, they're good enough I'm, to stay. I'm I'm the chief celebrant of said <laughs> approach. So, conventional wisdom re twenty twenty four is incorrect about what Corey that uh, Trump uh, the the U S election campaign and you know if if Trump ends up being the president that that is going to be a driver uh, in Canadian politics to any significant degree. I think. I think that is uh, even more wishful thinking than than the provinces are going to you know try to foist private health care and somehow uh, save the federal liberal party from its impending doom. Look, uh, I, I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna matter a hill of beans uh, outside of uh, the uh, the pearl clutching class and the Canadian media who like to go on and on about this. Uh, I don't think it's a real thing. I think people are going to be motivated to vote on Canadian politics around people running in Canada and issues in Canada. You know, the numbers in Canada on Trump are staggering, right? Like yeah, the vast well, majority of conservative voters in Canada really hate Donald Trump. Yeah. So uh, and then when you like, I still think that Coletto poll of uh, several months ago now that showed, you know, who who do Canadians trust more to deal with the Trump presidency, Justin Trudeau? Uh, or Pierre Polyev, that Pierre Polyev has like a fucking 20 point lead. So, you know, I don't, I, you know, where is the data that supports this conventional wisdom notion that I keep hearing repeated in the commentariat, uh, and by, uh, uh, mainstream media columnists across the board? I just don't see it. Like, sh so show Corey's me the data and maybe you'll, maybe you'll convince me. Corey's pick is close enough to mine that I'm just going to pile on. My, my, uh, conventional wisdom is wrong about, is yeah the idea that a Trump presidency can in any way help bolster Justin Trudeau's fortunes? I think it's wishful thinking. I th I think that there will be some knock-on effects in Canadian politics, but I actually think that they will tend to benefit Polyev. I think it drives a polarization in political discourse. I think it makes people believe that we need a strongman-type leader to confront a strong man and that's actually what the abacus poll sort of bears out in that um and i think that overall my my main beef with that argument is that it hews way too close to just sitting back and waiting for events to be a saving grace for trudeau and i think that that's uh i think it's both wrong well, that's and, what you do jordan when you believe dangerous. that you are when you are right and all you need is for people to come to the conclusion that you are right yeah, and that actually is pretty much the nut of the problem for this government. So mm. that's, uh, anyway, going to cast my lot in with Corey on that prediction. Excellent. Scott, what do you got? I'm going to come back to this whole topic a little later, um, particularly to Jordan's point uh, about uh, the idea that Trump is going to disrupt everything, everywhere uh, upon his re-election, or his election, I should say, I guess, um, and that it means that you just sit around waiting for it to occur because I have a different take on that. But um, my my pick is um, is that uh, is that interest rates 
and the lag and people's overall attitudes towards the economy are going to take forever to correct. I actually think that 2024 is going to surprise us. I think the Bank of Canada is going to be forced. I, I think that things are worse than we think right now in terms of GDP and overall economic activity. I think it's going to force the bank's hands. I think they're going to cut interest rates more rapidly, more deeply than people think. I think that that's going to be a dominant part of the discussion. And I think by the fall, it's going to start to alter people's perspectives. And I know people think I'm dreaming in technicolor. I'm not saying that that reverses the world for uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, but I think, I think we're, I think we're underestimating uh how quickly um economic conditions are going to be uh, are going to shift and how quickly people are going to absorb and react to that uh, i think it's i i i really think we're we're getting this wrong um i think that uh i, I think we're going to see um massive cuts well but, but scott like one of the things i i keep thinking when i hear about this this sort of cinderella dream that that the economy is going to turn around. Everyone's Jesus going to Christ. Get a new talking point. Everything okay. is a fucking fi fever dream. Well, okay. But here it's here's, projections, here's, predictions. But no, but, <laughs> yeah. But here, but here's what the predictions are on, on economic growth. And I think this is part of what's driving uh, the problem with Trudeau's numbers is, is like, it's flat. Like we are not growing yes, away. That's my other, point. Other and consequently the bank of Canada is right. going to have to cut interest but, rates much more deeply and rapidly than is currently predicted. But, but they're saying the opposite. So, you know, and, and, and do we think that that's actually going to drive it? Cause like, I, I think there's a, there's a different cure here and a different narrative around that. That's I think far more compelling and far more likely to be the case. We have to start building things again in, in, in Canada. We have to get moving on, 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 uh, you know, in a number of areas, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's resource development, whether it's, you know, uh, building out our power grid, like all of this stuff requires a government that doesn't, sit pondering the environmental impact of things from now till the end of time like and, and without you know being five six years to a maybe on every major development project that's out there you can't okay, grow okay okay my point that. is that it's not going to be the bank of canada people it's work on this even gibo conventional wisdom operates on the assumption that the way people feel about the economy now is how they will continue to feel throughout 2024 i think that's dead wrong you can feel however you want about the economy. If you're never getting a permit to build anything, the economy is never getting any fucking better. Conventional wisdom is incorrect that the liberals need to get millennials back, the people that voted for Trudeau in 2015, that they've lost them to the left and the right and they need to get them back. Um, I think they're going to be the toughest group to come back. And I think that the priority ought to be for the liberals older Canadians, and particularly older women, who in recent months have shifted from liberal to conservative. It's very recent. They could switch their minds back. If the liberals took four points off the conservative total, it would completely change the political conversation in the country right now. And all of the things the liberals did as a government would be viewed differently um, than uh, they're being viewed right now. I think that ought to be an imperative. Um, is to immediately start going after uh, the older Canadians who are going to vote in the election and in large numbers and who have traditionally been very supportive of this government, but they've lost them. And there's no reason to lose them to Paul Yev. He voted for uh, age of entitlement to be 67. Daniel Smith's trying to blow up the CPP. There's no reason why those votes are sitting with the Conservatives. All right.
hundred percent agree. That's that, those are the true shoulder voters in the electorate right now. The no shame oddball prediction of the year. Jordan, lead us off with your no shame oddball prediction of the year. Okay, I'm going to make two. One more odd than uh, than the other, and they're both provincial. So my first prediction is that well, I think Evie's going to pretty much cruise to another majority, but I think that BC United is going to be demolished and we're going to see the BC Conservatives take official opposition, um, which will be kind of fun to watch um, in BC politics. And then my my second oddball prediction that is more oddball is that I think that the Saskatchewan NDP is going to give Scott Moe a run for their money and I think that they will come close to doubling their seats. Okay, well, there's two, there's two, there, there's, that's two different things. Okay. Yes. Corey and I were just in Saskatchewan. Okay. All right. I think the NDP. I know, you're going to have thoughts. You're going to have thoughts. I think the NDP will double their seats uh, because I think the NDP will win everything but a handful of seats in Regina or Saskatoon. All right. The problem is that the conservative margins in the rural seats are so enormous. So that the NDP would have to win everything in Saskatchewan that you could conceivably call urban in order to win the government. They got to win Moose Jaw. They've yep. got to win Prince Albert. They've got to win, win Yorkton. They've got yep. to win. I mean, and they're not going to win all those seats. So I just, yep. as much as I wanted to be true, Jordan, I'm not saying they're going to win government. I'm saying they're going to give Mo a run for his. But they're not because they can't beat him. So they can make it closer. And for me, the interesting thing in Saskatchewan is going to be whether a closer fight with the NDP makes Mo move toward the center yes, or I makes him that. reinforce his his rural base and yeah. go further to the right. I think we may see a more moderate Scott Mo come out this year, but that's my prediction. I don't know. Like, look, the dynamics in terms of that rural, urban, et cetera, it's, it's not completely analogous to what we're talking about with New Brunswick, but it's not completely different either. And, uh, you know, you put, you put your, your finger on the salient point, David, in terms of what that looks like. Um, so yeah, like, look, I agree with, you know, everything you just said around how that dynamic plays out in the province. All right. My no shame oddball prediction of the year is that the liberals, and this is this is not a prediction so much as it's a hope. I guess it's what makes it an oddball thing because there's no reason to make this prediction. <laughs> but my uh, my prediction is that the liberals turn Polyev's debt message into a liability because we all know two truths of politics. One truth is that people want balanced budgets, and second truth is that people don't want spending cuts. And right now, there's only one side of that message out there. And I think that uh, the Liberals can maneuver this and create some wedges, especially with a budget coming up, um, that will make that issue a little bit more uncomfortable uncomfortable for Polyev to be riding as hard as he's riding it. Scott, what's your oddball prediction? Freeland won't be finance minister by the end of the year. And I don't know if that means that she departs, which I think is probably possible. Um, Who is Andrew uh, Bevan? Hmm? Who is Andrew Bevan? I well, I hope so. I'd like to see that. Uh, he can run in a by-election of my creation in the writing of Scott Says So. Um, but I think that um, 
either a desire to bring in new blood, to alter, uh, to set a new stage, uh, or she'll move into uh, a post-political role. Something I just think this is going to change. A desire to get Carney in. I just think if I'm looking at an oddball prediction, um, I just don't think she's going to be a finance by the end of this year. Um, so that's my oddball prediction, and I will uh, stand by it until it's demonstrated to be incorrect. All right, we'll deal with that next year. Corey, you got one? I think that the federal liberals are, uh, government is going to increasingly swallow itself whole on a number of the environmental initiatives that have been central to its narrative uh, uh, up until this point. I think we saw the first element of that with the reversal on carbon tax on home heating fuel. But I think the far more substantial things that are going to be coming to a head uh, are going to be around you know, larger resource development and other projects driven by the Supreme Court throwing out their environmental impact assessment legislation. They're going to have to take their foot off the gas and start tapping the brakes around some of those key initiatives in, in a way that I think will be disheartening to uh, uh, my good and dear friend Stephen Gubo and uh, and make people on that side of their electoral coalition uncomfortable. I think they're going to stick with them anyway, but I think it's I think that's going to go a lot further than people are are predicting or expecting. Corey, why is Premier Ford not joining in the uh, carbon tax beating like all the Ontarians that use natural gas? I haven't heard him well, be as vo vocal on well, this as I thought he might. Well, it's playing prominently in the advertising campaign that's that's running on on the airwaves in Ontario right now uh, around carbon tax. Uh, you know, it's it's deeply unpopular in, in in the province with anyone who would ever consider voting conservative, and a lot of yeah. people who wouldn't consider voting conservative. So, you know, it, it, it's you know it's happening. And and look, the Ontario government is party to all the same suits that Scott Moe and and. You know, other premiers uh, uh, are on, like, you know, I'm not sure if we're doing our clipping, but we're going to do it on Wad, Wad Canoe saying that, you know, it's time to rethink the, the carbon tax and to give people a break on it. So I think there's, you to know. To come from the left, man, to come from the left, but, that is a. Yeah, but like, he's in company, right? Like, this but, is. But it's part of what's driving my prediction here, that that uh, I think you're seeing, you know, the foundation of, um uh, of that electoral coalition around environmental issues is crumbling, and, uh, and 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 what's driving that is cost of living pressures. What's driving that is, uh, you know, it, it's fine to say we're going to rebalance the rules uh, around these things in a way to make sure the environment's more more of a part of consideration. That only works if things are actually getting built and getting done. But if economic growth is basically zero, and people are seeing you know their paychecks uh, erode because of inflation. And they're seeing their mortgage going up because of related interest rate hikes. Uh, the environment goes from, you know, a driving political, uh, issue to one that's very much in, on the back burner and in the back seat. And, and I think that's going to continue to play out over the course of this year, but far more than people are anticipating where we're sitting today. Okay. Let's just do a quick drive by of our clipping right now. So it's from David Baxter and Global News. Here's a segment from it. Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe says that it is time to take another look at how the federal carbon price is applied in his province. I think there's an argument that Manitoba is maybe one of the strongest cases you could make that the price on carbon should be revisited in our jurisdiction, Canoe told West Block host Mercedes Stevenson. It's definitely something that I know Manitobans would like some help with, like to see some help with. We've put a lot of hard work in over the past five decades to build a low carbon electricity grid. 
We've paid the down payment on that mortgage. We're in a position to have a low carbon economy going into the future. Scott, what do you think are the implications of this? Well, I'll, t- I'll come through a slightly different door than Corey, and I agree with a lot of what he just said. But the twist I would put on it is I think that this could be a lifeline for the Liberals. I think it could be a huge opportunity. Rather than saying, oh, my God, now that this is also coming from the left, right, uh, an NDP premier saying this, my God, we're really under uh, battle guns, and we have to, like, you know, get even more defiant. And uh, I think they should say, you know what? Uh, let's read the room and 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 use it as an opportunity to say, well, this guy is giving us a path out of this uh, political uh, knot. And so I, I think that, you know, it, it's it's an opportunity to start discussions and say, all right, well, how how would we undo this? And how what would we do instead that would still form a credible, confident climate change program? How do you move to uh, cap and trade? How, how, what do we do with the um, uh, the rebates that go to people? How do we manage all of that? I would, instead of saying, go fuck yourself, Wab Canoe, you're as bad as the rest of them, and we are going to hold firm on this, even though we didn't on Atlantic Canada, but that was it. That's the last one. I would say, let's let's have a discussion then and create some space for themselves where they don't seem dogmatic on this issue, which is such a punishing anchor. It drags them down. And so I don't know how it will unfold, but I'd be looking at this not as a not not as an assault, but as an opportunity. Jordan, I, what would happen? What would happen to the federal NDP vote if Jugmeet Singh jumped on this bandwagon? Well, like he kind of already has, right? Like he remember not he that voted, I've, I sorry if that's true, I don't know it. Which yeah, kinds of- he he voted with the conservatives on an opposition day motion. Uh, before the break about expanding the exemptions around the carbon tax for home heating to other jurisdictions. Like there's no, the new Democrats have made a clear decision. You can see it more clearly at the provincial level with canoe, but the feds have also made the same call. They are not going to die on the altar of the tool of the carbon tax as the specific tool for reducing emissions. Because frankly, the liberals have so badly bungled politics and the communication around it that it's politically irredeemable at this point. So they're not, they are not going to go to bat for something that the Trudeau government themselves seems incapable of defending and has become such a poison well. And so, you know, I think, I think Scott's got some good advice there for the liberals, but I think they would require a personality transplant for the party to even remotely consider doing some judo like that. They're not going to. And I think that what you see from Canoe is actually it's entirely consistent with how he campaigned. You remember he campaigned on lifting the provincial fuel tax. Um, so this is, to, and and I mean, you can also contrast it a bit with Mo, right? So he's not out there saying we're going to unilaterally stop collecting. You know, he's, he's out there saying <clears throat> we deserve the same consideration, for example, that people in Atlantic Canada got. And he's making an argument about the significant investments that have already been made uh, in Manitoba, around hydro and things but, like but that. The difference, so I, think it's I would a argue, different the, conversation. I always get shit when I interrupt you, Jordan. I'm sorry, but That's okay. you always say interesting things, and they provoke me to have something to say back to you, which is to say, Canoe seems focused on reducing the cost of government on his on his citizens. Yes. I do not hear that message from the NDP. I hear getting more government money to citizens. I do not hear anything about the reverse. Yeah, so I think on the federal level, what I'd say around that is that Singh and the NDP are not primarily messaging on the issue of carbon tax. It's not a great issue for them. It is fraught politically for them because they take heat from the 
the environmentalists every time they go out and they push back against the carbon tax in any way. But I think that when you look at that issue specifically, the party has put out some breadcrumbs around it. So you've got Singh out there talking about lifting the GST on home heating across the board, which is something that would apply in every jurisdiction for every type of fuel. You've got him tacitly agreeing on the issue of more car votes on the carbon tax for home heating in other jurisdictions. So to me, those are those are pretty like they had some pretty clear decision points. And uh, Singh and his caucus with him made the call that they need to they can make an argument around climate without hewing to the tool of the carbon tax. And I think it's smart. Like they cannot go to bat for machinery of government on this when it has been so bungled by the Trudeau Liberals. They just have to walk away from this and they have to make their environmental arguments elsewhere. And so I think that's what you're seeing. There, This is going to continue to be an argument that is primarily useful for the Conservatives. So I don't think you're going to see the Federal New Democrats lead with that as their affordability edge. They're going to look for other places to do that around things like grocery prices, around things like you know the, the dental and the pharma and things like that. That's where they've chosen to put their eggs. But but I think that it's very interesting that you've seen them put out some pretty clear markers that distance themselves very strongly from the liberals on this particular issue. I'll just say that when people are struggling with the cost of living, you can talk to them about programs that you could introduce to help them. But intuitively, the most yeah. obvious thing for people is let me keep more of my money. Totally. I totally right? agree with you. And this is a real bit, really big challenge for this has always been a big challenge for the New, De New Democrats federally, right? Because they need to find a way to have that click for we're going to make your day to day pocketbook issues easier. And the, and the easiest argument to make is tax breaks. But of course, for, for a variety of reasons, that is not the first argument that New Democrats want to make. So you see them trying to find creative ways to make it. And I think that there are some, like the GST, HST off home heating, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, why are we paying tax on that? That's a great argument. And I think hopefully they're going to find some other ones like that to pick up and run with this. Year. Well, the argument, though, is that you're going to increase the cost of energy and then you're going to have people want to use less. And like it, it is debasing the, uh, the carbon tax, you know, uh, through a different mechanism. Right. Which which I, sure. I tend to agree, I agree with. That. But, yeah, but like I that's, agree with that's that, ultimately though. what it yeah. is. Yeah. I, but, I, you know, I think for for all of the. Uh, behind the scenes posturing of Gibo around this stuff or the stuff he's done publicly, like, you know, saying, you know, if there are any more car votes, essentially that I'm, I'm out of here, I won't be the minister any longer. You know, like that tension is going to continue to play out. I think the bet, you know, net benefactor in this, because, you know, as I just said, I think the liberals are going to, they're going to bow to what you're talking about. I think they're going to largely take your advice, whether it's directly or whether it's, it's through, you know, larger rebates that, debase it in a, you know, in another fashion. Like, I think the car, you know, the carbon tax is going to be diminished. It's not going to be what, uh, was planned or promised, uh, it, you know, whether it's through exemptions, rebates, other me mechanisms. I think that's probably happening. This, if the, if the Greens ever got their shit together would be a big boon for them. Like, I think they would do a lot better the next election because I think that environmental vote is not going to be fought over between the NDP and the Liberals increasingly, I think it's going to be going to the Greens because uh, they're the only ones who are going to hold true to those those concepts and principles. Uh, electoral politics be damned. Well, <clears throat> this is a show of predictions. Well, that, that last part is sure true. There's a show of predictions, and I'll make one that I believe to be almost 100% unassailably true, is that in 2027, there will not be a carbon tax in Canada. Yeah. One well, way or another. Yeah. Right? There will not be a carbon tax. I think there may not 
not be a consumer. That's what I mean. There will not be a consumer. Yeah. That's sorry. That's what I mean by that. But, yeah. but but even for the conservatives, you know, when it comes to carbon pricing at the industrial level, like that's where there is commonality at at the federal and provincial uh, level. You know, where you'll see differences of opinion is at what rate and what time and what's realistic and you know uh, what industry should bear the brunt of it. Like you'll have di- disagreements, you know, that are are predictable based on what different provincial economies look like. But there is generally support across the board on the industrial side. It's the consumer side. That's really where where people are of of you know got, got their back up on it, and I think rightfully so. Right. Okay. Let's swing around and wrap this up. We have one more of Scott's games to play, which is our New Year's resolution. Leapfrog. New Year's resolution. Scott, lead us off. What's your New Year's resolution to somebody? We're Year's, giving this to somebody. My New Year's resolution. Uh, is uh, to the Prime Minister's office, Max Valakat, the new communications director, um, whatever, the team that's going to be thinking about how to plot 2024 out. And here's my suggestion. You're going to have a U.S. presidential election. We all think, and we talked about it earlier, that Trump is going to win. We all, I think, agree, even though Corey says it won't affect Trudeau. We'll have to see. But I know it's going to be a massive disruptive event around the world, in the United States, and in Canada. It's just going to, it's going to reorganize the way people think about politics and their lives and what they expect of their leaders. And so you've got that. But you've also got a shitload of international travel, as you always do. So this is, this is where, you know, the government... Is low in the polls. Peace mission. You're going to a peace mission, aren't you? No, no, I'm not. I'm saying have a plan, right? These international summits are never used to any genuine benefit from a partisan perspective or electoral perspective. But you can sit in a room right now for the next three weeks in January without the House in session, and you can look at the map of international events that the prime minister is obligated to go to. You can look at the campaign that's going to start to unfold later this month. Uh, in the United States, culminating in the election of Trump in November. And you can say, these things are happening. Now, what do we do? What use can we make of this? How can we position ourselves? What tools can we employ? What levers can we pull that make it better for us rather than worse for us? That allow us to set up to be a beneficiary of something rather than just corks in a river that are floating along and reacting and hoping we don't get dashed on the rocks of the shores. So I think that like it's going to be a big big year internationally and i think that if i was in the prime minister's office my new year's resolution is don't just sit back and shrug it and say well we'll do a debrief in advance of each one of these international events and then we'll sort of react as we can think about it now try to actually make some utility of it have a fucking plan because you need one man there we go all right jordan new year's resolution uh, mine is going out to the federal New Democrats, and uh, it's a version of it's the economy, stupid. So there's going to be, this is a year, there's going to be many temptations along the road, uh, many issues that are not related to how people are experiencing affordability in their day-to-day lives. And I mean this in the economy in the, in the large sense, so wages, cost of living, all of that stuff. And I think it's going to be uh, have to be a New Year's resolution on the part of the leader, leaders team and caucus to keep that experience that voters are having at the core of the work that they're doing. And so that means not getting bogged down in, uh, for example, 
details on pharmacare and dying on that particular hill. Pick a different, better hill to die on. Uh, um, get something and then move on. <laughs> and make sure that you're not painting yourself into a corner and blowing up the CSA at a moment that's not advantageous for you. Make it work for you. Do not work for it. There's also going to be all sorts of other issues happening. In Canada, we're going to see the issue of um, of trans kids, sadly, horribly, is going to be used as a political cudgel by weak conservative premiers. State your piece, but do not get drawn in. Do not linger there. You need to keep the affordability, the economy issues at the center. There's going to be global events. There's going to be Sadly, I think there's going to be Trump. There's going to be just continued horror in Gaza, in Israel. Stay focused. You have to make sure that you are hewing to those affordability, those economy issues that voters are experiencing. And there'll be a reward for that at the end of the year if you're able to do so. Awesome. All right, Corey. Who do you got a New Year's resolution for? Uh, for Pierre Polyev. Uh, I think he should, uh, as a New Year's re resolution, spend less time in Ottawa. I, I think that while he is a good performer in question period and in a way kind of kind of reminds me of uh, opposition leaders that we've seen in the past. I was going to um, say, I worked for a really excellent You, you worked for one. And uh, but the, I, I, th I think the prosecutorial sort of, you know, um, uh, throwing of barbs in, in question period uh, well, it gets the troops all, all wound up in, in a positive way. I think there's a better version of polio that we've seen and, and it, and it's not, you know, just the stuff in the ads. I think it's the big rallies. I think it's this ability to actually craft an economic narrative and roll out a storyline to a big room of people and, and almost in, you know, a, a, a you know, evangelical revival sort of way. And, and like, I, I don't mean it in the religious sense, but in that notion of being able to tell a story and get a, a big room of people behind him and energized. I think the value of that is the kind of energy uh, that that will uh, be better for him, both in terms of not contradicting the, the image that I think has been really carefully crafted through their advertising, but I think it's a, it's a deeper level of motivation for the people who are hearing it. And uh, uh, so you know, it's always going to be tempting, especially when you've got a young family and, and all of that to you know, be in Ottawa and do three days a week at question period. I would do one day a week at question period. I, I would kind of put in the bare minimum on that and spend the rest of the time doing those sorts of larger, larger rallies and events and, and uh, getting the story out that way, get better press. You know, I think it's more in alignment with this image that he's the, you know, that's the best image of him. So I love it uh, when Corey has been back to the source in Saskatchewan. Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, Ottawa's his weakest territory, right? Yeah. Well, Ottawa's the weakest worst. place for him to play politics right now. Cause there's a lot of traps in Ottawa for him. There's, there's traps, but you know, there's, it's also where you get your worst media coverage. You know, that's where, uh, where the folks who are, you know, least in alignment with him yeah, uh, in the media yeah. are. Um, but, you know, you also get sucked into to uh, the worst elements of what caucus is, too, because they have a list of issues and things that are often very different than what the folks out there have. And, you know, it, I, I think if you're out meeting with people in that way, you're going to be you know, you're going to be kept on the straight and narrow in terms of the same issue set. You know, frankly, I agree with, you know, Jordan's concept of what the right issue set is. That's all true for, for both the government and the conservative party. 
the economy and cost of living and the intersection with with that and people's daily lives is where the voters are. So the more you're there, the better you're going to be doing. All right. My New Year's resolution goes out to everybody in the Liberal caucus who thinks they should be the next leader. The Prime Minister um, may think, may even believe that he's going to run in the next election, but there's a more than 50% chance based on current polling that he does not, and that sometime in early 2025, he pulls the plug. And you should be ready, and it's not disloyal to be ready. You should spend this year showing some leg, trying to build some profile with people. There's nothing wrong with organizing and putting together networks. People need to be ready for what is likely to happen, which is a leadership change in 2025. And uh, we're going to need to elevate somebody from almost nowheresville to prominence in a very quick period of time. And so the better prepared you are to do that, the better chance we'll all have. Okay, good advice. Can I count on your support, David? <laughs> if you're in, buddy, I'm in. All right. I bet even Corey and Jordan would get behind that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe for different reasons. <laughs> exactly. Well, only if you can create a new cabinet position and put me in it. And the title I want is Generalissimo. So just keep that in mind. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right, let's wind it up with Mr. Pinson. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Okay. Scott, you got a hey you? Uh, yeah, my hey you. Uh, we've mentioned his name a couple times today. Uh, I'm going to give a hey you out to uh, Andrew Bevan, uh, Minister Freeland, and the Department of Finance. They did something smart. Uh, given that they were going to, just before Christmas, Given that they had made the decision they were going to approve the uh, takeover of HSBC, which is wildly unpopular, could be politically divisive, uh, they managed to keep a lid on that debate. They managed to keep that uh, potentially very uh, smelly uh, kettle of fish uh, away from people's nostrils. And then they approved it on the 21st of December, two days before the weekend, four days before Christmas. That's the way you bury something. Well done. <laughs> Excellent. Corey? Well, I, my hey you was, I, I, I'm unprepared here. Uh, I, I kind of thought it was going to be our New Year's resolution. Uh, uh, we always I, have a hey you. Well, I, I'm going to do a hey you to uh, all of our listeners out there and uh, to uh, say, uh, as we were talking about earlier, lots of interesting stuff going out in, on in BC. I'm gonna uh, gonna be trying to spend a little more time thinking about that and understanding that and listening to that. So my hey you is uh, everyone who's listened to this podcast, go and uh, subscribe and follow uh, Hotel Pacifico and, nice. and do that and uh, join on that journey with me. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's Thank a good you, one. Corey. Here, Jordan. Uh, well, so my hey you is uh, going out to such as they are, the oppo teams in the Liberal uh, Leader's Office and the NDP. I mean, maybe more to the NDP since we've established that the red team doesn't care too much to this sort of thing. But uh, there is an opportunity before you. So Melissa Lanceman is out saying, don't worry, folks, you're going to hear more about what conservatives are going to cut in our platform. Just wait. Wait and see. You're going to hear our plans for what we're going to cut to control the debt in our platform. No, you won't. Friends, don't wait. Do not <laughs> wait. Fill in that blank for them. Fill in that blank for them now. Start your engines 
are they going to cut? Are they going to cut all these new, as Corey so adores calling them, all these new entitlement programs? Is dental for seniors that's coming in this year? Is that going to be cut? What's going to happen to your carbon tax rebates, your climate whatever payments? Uh, are you going to keep those even if there's no consumer carbon price? I want to know. We want to know all this stuff. Get out there and make some suggestions to fill in that blank for voters. Excellent, Jordan. And in fact, I would go a step further. I would just assert that he's going to do things and make yes, him deny course. them, right? Because <laughs> yeah. he won't say, so I would just say, well, he's going to do this. Yeah. Um, uh, my Hey You goes out to uh, my good friend, despite being a Boston Bruins fan and a fan of progressive rock, my good friend, Steve McKinnon. And this is a good example. He, he's become the house leader for the Liberal government. And this is a good example of never to take my political advice because I told Steve not to run back in 2015 because uh, I told Steve he'd never be a cabinet minister. You know, white man from the Udaway, an English white man from the Udaway is never going to find his way into the cabinet. Yet here he is. And he's here because he's really good. He's really talented. He will be effect, particularly effective at this job. And congratulations, Steve McKinnon. And also a shout out to Karina. Gould, who really did uh, a fabulous job, and good luck uh, on the mat leave. I think you just made me look like an asshole. Did you just make me look like an asshole? I would never. Be, David. <laughs> <laughs> David, can I can I can I try to wedge in with like a a, a little bit Patriarchy of a two hat on? Uh, David, can I wedge in with a little bit of a two Hey, you, because I actually was thinking about this when we were out in Saskatchewan. But just a quick shout out to the family of Joe Don Levy, who was. Uh, Brad Wolf's longtime chief of staff, who who passed, uh, you know, quite quite suddenly and at a, at a much younger age than you ever would like to see anyone one go at. Uh, but somebody who played a you know a really big role in uh, politics in Saskatchewan. I know that uh, there were a lot of people who came together to recognize his contribution over the Christmas holidays. So, uh, hey, you to those folks as well. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thank the four of you. Thank the three of you. Is it 2014? Are there four of you or three of you? I don't even know what the <laughs> fuck is going on anymore. In any event, it's 2025. This pod's been so goddamn long. <laughs> it has been very long. We had a lot to talk about, as it turns out. Anyways, it was great to hang out with the uh, three of you. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN. All of you who uh, waited patiently for three weeks for a new curse of politics, we're back. And thank you for waiting patiently for it. We'll see you next week with more of the curse of politics. See you then. Thank you.